just remember the, the basic structure of this book that we've covered this summer. I want to couple, take a couple minutes just to kind of wrap up our series as we get into these last couple chapters. Daniel basically breaks up into two main parts. First six chapters are stories that illustrate these same main three points. The second six chapters, chapters 7 through 12, are a series of visions that God gives to Daniel to show him that not only those first six stories, but the ongoing story of history will play out these same three points as well. Now, much of the content of the visions that we've seen in chapters 7 and forward has been fulfilled over the 2,500 years that have passed from Daniel's time to our time. But, as we'll see even today, there are certain parts of it that that are still awaiting their final and future fulfillment. But it's important as we get into 11 and 12 to remember how this vision in 11 and 12 fits into the overall pattern of the book. So can you put up that next slide really quickly? So check it out. We learned all the way back in Daniel chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue made of four kind of metals. You guys remember that one? The statue? Okay, there's like four nods. Okay, we'll go with you four. That's good. All right. So Daniel has a vision with or, uh, Nebuchadnezzar the king has a dream of this statue made out of four different kinds of metals. And Daniel explains to them to him that it's referring to a succession of four kingdoms that will come onto the stage of world history and be ushered off as God enters in his final and everlasting kingdom. Chapter 7, when Daniel has the vision of the four different terrible beasts, seems again to pick up on this same kind of pattern. As we move into Daniel chapter 8, can you go to the next uh, slide? We see this vision of a ram and a goat who are very specifically referred to. The ram is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and the goat is the king of Greece who basically just plows over the Persians, but then his kingdom is broken into four different pieces. And it's referred to as the, the, the ram represents the king, or the goat represents the kingdom of Greece. Daniel chapter 9, which we covered a couple weeks ago, kind of looks at this whole span of time, but it's really more focused on what's going on in Jerusalem during this whole span of time. When we come to Daniel chapter 11 and 12, here's how it fits in. Go to the next slide. Out of those four kingdoms that split off from the, the kingdom of Greece, the whole vision in 11 and 12, or at least majority of 11, focuses on Two of those four that are called the kings of the north and south. So that's what we're going to look at. As you see that, you can kind of see there's a general movement in these visions from general big picture to more detailed and specific to a certain part in that process. So as we get into 11 and 12, keep that in mind. Even as you continue to study the book of Daniel, keep that in mind. At the same time also, we need to remember that Daniel chapters 11 and 12 build off of Daniel chapter 10. Those last three chapters are all this one unit. And as Todd showed us last week, in Daniel chapter 10, we are given a vision of the events that, that are underneath the human events that we see in history. There's this terrifying man, this, this heavenly being that shines like the sun, who may have even been, as, as Todd said, it may have even been Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate glory. He comes to Daniel and he begins to peel back the curtain and show Daniel that behind all the schemings of human kingdoms, behind all the things that go on on the surface, there lies a much bigger, much older battle in the spiritual realm. A battle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. A battle between our God and his adversary and our adversary, Satan. And so we need to remember that because all of the events that we look at in 11 and 12 are meant to be seen through the lens of this greater spiritual battle. 
it shouldn't be surprising. If that's the reality, if there are spiritual forces at work in the midst of the world that we, we, we maybe not be able to see or sense with our senses, it shouldn't surprise us that we find so many world leaders throughout history and even current aspiring world leaders, they all fit the same mold. They all seem to be cut from the same cloth. They're self-exalting. They want to oppress those who oppose them. They yearn for unrestrained power, and once they get it, they want to hold on to that power forever. This should not surprise us that this is what rebellious human rulers do, because this is exactly what Satan did. But he knows he can't win. He's not trying to win. He knows that the only thing that awaits him is an eternity of God's judgment in the lake of fire. But that doesn't mean in the process that he can't sucker a bunch of people along with him into that same disastrous fate. That's why I would say that that the scope of human history, especially when we look at human kingdoms, it's a bit like the old Chuck E. Cheese game, Whack-A-Mole. You guys remember Whack-A-Mole? We basically have this like little little thing set up with a bunch of holes in it, and the little animal will pop out, and you have this big like padded hammer. You got to whack the animal, and it'll pop back down, but another one will pop back up. You got to try and whack all the moles, right? Isn't that what human history seems like sometimes? One evil ruler will pop up, and as soon as he's taken out, somebody else somewhere else on the map pops up, seeming to follow the same script. It's almost like there's something underneath the surface. Something that we can't see that's controlling it. And there is. That's what Daniel 10 tells us. There is an ungodly, sinister power at work behind the rebellious actions of human rulers. And chapter 10 tells us that these forces are not to be underestimated, but neither are they to be feared. Because as the Apostle John will say many years later, greater is he who is in us than he who's in the world. That doesn't mean it's going to be a cakewalk. As a matter of fact, the way that 11 and 12 play out, it seems assured that it will be anything but a cakewalk. Look back at chapter 10, verse 20. In chapter 10, verse 20, this heavenly being who's speaking to Daniel, he says this. He says, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So he says, okay, well, he'd already told him earlier. It had taken, taken this guy three weeks to get to Daniel because he'd been fighting against this spiritual being that was called the prince of Persia. He says, as soon as I'm done with this message, I'm going back to fight him again. And right behind him comes this spiritual being that's called the prince of Greece. And what is explained on the spiritual level in 10 verse 20, in 11 verses 2 through 4, we get the same sequence of events, this time described from the human level. Look at 11 chapter 2. Chapter 11 verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. If you're someone who writes in your Bible, circle that phrase, do as he wills. You're going to see it a couple more times in this chapter. He will have great dominion. He will do as he wills. But as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. 
He says, understand, on the human level, there's four more kings from Persia. And the fourth one, who most likely was Xerxes I, who uh, you might know him as the one who married Queen Esther. He was the one who basically said, hey, let's go take over the Greeks. Let's, let's, let's push our armies to the west. And he's stopped by the Greeks. And basically because of that Persian aggression against the Greeks, which is, that's what caused Alexander as a young man to say, let's go take him down. So Alexander the Great comes, and he basically, in a very short amount of time, just a couple of years, he mows down the entire Persian Empire, makes it all the way into India, and he does as he wills with great dominion. And the only thing that stops him is when his homesick army refuses to go any further. Okay, fine. If none of the army's coming with me, I should probably go back. At the height of his power, taking over the known world at the time, Alexander dies of illness at the age of 32 in the year 323 B.C. His only son hasn't even been born yet. He'll be born later that year. So there's no one to take his place. So what ensues is that Alexander's generals begin to fight for control of his empire. And after years and decades of civil wars, what basically happens, just as this passion said, or this passage said, his kingdom is broken up into kind of four main power centers. Can you go to that next page of the map? What we're going to see is of these four power centers, actually, go one more, please. Of those four main power centers, the rest of Daniel chapter 11 is going to focus exclusively on two of those. Maybe that map will come up. We'll see. Wait for it. If you can, there's a tiny one on the back screen. But anyways, so what's going to happen is that the rest of Daniel chapter 11 is going to focus on two of those that, that, that are called the king of the north and the king of the south. Now, king of the north and south compared to what? Well, what we see from this passage, it's in relation to the land of Israel. Daniel's whole heart since chapter 9 has been on his people returning back to the land, on God's temple being rebuilt, and life being restored in the promised land. And so this vision is given to him to say, okay, you want to know what's going to happen in this promised land? Well, let's see. And it's going to focus on these two Greek powers, one to the south in Egypt, a, group, a kingdom called the Ptolemies, and one up in the north in Persia, a kingdom called the Seleucids. And basically what happens throughout the rest of chapter 11 is that Israel's kind of like the beach ball that gets, gets batted back and forth between these two kingdoms. At first, the Ptolemies rule the day. And for 125 years, God's people are under the, rules, under the rule of the Greek kingdom that was based in Egypt. But as we see in about verse 15, I believe it is, it says the king of the north will throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces from the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. And at that point in history, the balance of power shifts, and the, kingdom, and the land of Israel comes under the control of the Seleucids up in the north. Does that make sense? Everything in chapter 11 is kind of based off of that. For 56 years, they're under the control of the king of the north. Now, here's the thing. You might already be going, wow, there's a lot of detail. I'm skimming the surface, I promise. This is, without a doubt, the most detailed foretelling prophecy in the entire Bible. Daniel chapter 11 has so much detail that in some ways I think it would be really fun to go through them, but my hunch is that maybe only like three of us would find it really fun. And everybody else would like count ceiling tiles or something until we're done. And we don't have time for that anyways. But I would say this. 
If you're interested in in going through how the details in this passage play out over the course of the history of this period, Ian Duguid, I don't know, it's a Scottish name, or Irish or something. Ian Duguid, I think is how you say it. He did a great job in his commentary of summarizing what happens in this. But here's the thing I want you to get from this. Daniel is writing, remember, right about, this is happening right about 500 B.C., but the events that are recorded in Daniel chapter 11 take place more between like 300 to 100 B.C. So he's writing two to 400 years in advance of these events that are happening. But all the details in this prophecy basically lay out like play-by-play account that for a lot of years, many biblical scholars would say there is no way that Daniel chapter 11 was written beforehand. No way. Even true prophecy couldn't be that specific. This has to have been written after the fact, as more of like a history of the period, not foretelling it. But it's just written in a way so that it appears like prophecy. And there are many like really faithful men of God who hold that position. I I think it's a dangerous position for two reasons. Number one, that's kind of dishonest, isn't it? Like, even if, it, even if it was written after the fact, the fact that it's written to sound like foretelling prophecy, if that's not what it is, it's kind of fundamentally dishonest. It's trying to deceive and appear to be something that it's not. The other reason why I don't agree with that, I think this was written about 500 B.C. before all these events took place, is because if, if, you, if you don't allow this to be prophecy beforehand, basically... You, you fail to recognize that our God is sovereign not just over the big picture, but over the details. He doesn't just guide history through the grand movements, but those grand movements are made up of specific movements that are also guided by his hand. In Isaiah chapter 46, God calls Israel, he says this in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, he calls Israel to remember the former things of old. For I am a God and there is no, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have no problem taking this vision in Daniel chapter 11 as exactly what it appears to be the detailed foretelling of events that were still to come in the future, and the accuracy with which the events play out over the course of history should give us so much confidence that if God is that specific in guiding human events, the things that have not yet happened in this passage, we can have confidence that they likewise will play out exactly as God has said. Our God guides history. There's a marked shift that takes place in verse 21 of Daniel chapter 11. Basically, verses 5 through 20 go through this whole succession of kings of the north and the south. But in verse 21, the pace of it slows down. And for the next 15 verses, we focus on one guy. One guy who is called a contemptible person who seizes the control of the kingdom of the north. Not because he had the right to it, but through conniving and flattery, he comes into power in the kingdom. This man is almost universally identified by historians and Bible scholars alike as referring to one king of the North Kingdom, a guy by the name of Antiochus IV, who took the title for himself Antiochus Epiphanes. 
Because he saw himself to be the embodiment, the embodiment of the chief Greek god Zeus. I am Zeus in epiphany form. I have appeared to you as this God. That's pretty boastful. That's thinking pretty highly of yourself. And while this king only ruled for 12 years, during those 12 years, he earned himself a place among the most ruthless rulers in history. Look at verse 21, how he's described. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. And he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province And he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder and spoil and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. I love that. This guy sounds like an unstoppable force to be reckoned with. But yet in the midst of this vision, God throws in, yeah, but his time's coming too. The clock's ticking on this guy from the moment that he takes power. He's just the next mole to pop his head out of the ground in the whack-a-mole game. And I'll smack him back down in his time. But first, before that happens, God wants Daniel to see that his people will suffer greatly at the hands of this king. Look at verse 28. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. I'm sorry, that's verse 29. Let me go one before. He shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will. He'll do what he wants and return to his land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships from Kittim shall come against him. And he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. Speaking of God's people. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. The way that these events played out is really remarkable. This king is building his power so quickly, he's exercising almost unlimited power, but it's not enough for him. He wants to extend his rule even farther. So he marches his armies down into Egypt to try to take over the Ptolemaic Empire. But as soon as he gets down there, he sees some ships on the horizon who have arrived from an emerging power in the ancient world known as Rome. And they pull in, and basically they trap Antiochus and his forces down there and force him into retreat. Antiochus leaves humiliated and enraged. But in the meantime, word had gotten back to Jerusalem that somehow Antiochus had been killed during his campaign back in Egypt. And so God's people are rejoicing. The wicked witch is dead, if you will. And they're trying to take control back over their land. And so this humiliated, enraged king is marching back home with his tail between his legs, with his army following behind him. And he gets word that the Jews up in the hill country are celebrating his death. So he goes, all right, if that's how it is, I got an army with me. They're looking to fight somebody. Let's go. And he brings his armies up into Jerusalem and slaughters many people. But he's also surprised to find, or maybe not surprised to find, that many of the Jews 
had really liked what the Greeks had done. They'd basically forsaken their identity as God's people and taken on Greek culture and Greek religion. And they help Antiochus overthrow the temple. He seizes control of God's temple, and once he has control, he goes, I know what I'll do. I'll repurpose this into a temple to Zeus. And he sets up an altar to Zeus on the altar of God's temple and burns a pig on that altar in December of either 168 or 167 B.C. And for the next three years, Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem is given over to the worship of pagan Zeus. This is almost unanimously identified as the abomination of desolation that this vision talks about in verse 31. This is the most humiliating point. The temple hasn't just been destroyed. It's being used to worship a false god. This is an abomination. But look at what happens in verse 32. He will seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. I love that. He's not going to be able to hoodwink the people who actually know their God, for whom these religious traditions are not just traditions, but it's actually they know this God. I think this verse in 32, it, it refers to um, the Maccabean movement. Uh, the, this, there was this older Jewish priest by the name of Matthias Maccabeus, and he had five sons who, when they saw the defilement of God's temple, they said, this cannot stand. And over the course of the next three years, they lead a guerrilla movement that slowly but surely kicks the Greeks out of town. And three years later, in December of 164 B.C., They have removed every vestige of Zeus worship from the temple. They have purified it, and they rededicate God's temple. God's people are once again able to worship him in the temple. This was a glorious moment in the history of God's people, which is why from that point on, every December, devout Jewish families gathered together to celebrate the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah to celebrate when God's temple was recaptured and rededicated so that they could worship him again. But that's not the end of this vision. This, this is, you see at the end of verse 35, this statement that says, okay, there's, it, this will happen until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. The end isn't yet. And what happens in verse 36 is really interesting because Something happens in here. This whole passage has been so, as we look at the history of the period, it's so specific and accurate on the way that everything plays out until we get to verses 36 and following. There's not a clear break that we're talking about a different king, but the king that's spoken of here is doing things that seem to even go beyond anything that Antiochus Epiphanes could accomplish. And it seems that, and many scholars, and I would agree with them, we're not, we, as we look at this part of the passage, we're not talking about this same Antiochus king anymore. But one who, it's not just the next mole to pop up in the whack-a-mole game. It seems that this king that's spoken of in this last part of the vision is the epitome of human rebellion, a human self-exaltation and rebellion against God. I believe that verses 36 and following, we're not talking about just one king, but we are talking about the rebellious, rebellious human ruler the one that's kind of referred to later on in the book of 2 Thessalonians as the man of lawlessness, or you may know him as the Antichrist. One of the, one of the common traits of 
Hebrew prophecy is something that we would call prophetic telescoping, or, or almost, it's, I guess you could say it's like a prophetic time warp. Where basically, as God's people are being given views of what is to come, they see close events that also seem to foreshadow events that are further down the road to come. It's almost like as if you're standing on top of a hill and you see a huge storm system off in the distance. And you see some storm clouds on the front end that are bringing rain and things like that, but there's the big daddy thunderhead out on the mountain. And even as each of those clouds pass overhead, you know the storm has come, but the storm is still coming. And I think that's what's going on at this part of the passage. That all the evil rulers that we've seen from Nebuchadnezzar to Antiochus they also foreshadow this ultimate evil ruler. Those guys are storm clouds, but this guy is the thunderhead. And in the same way, God's destruction of each of these succession of human rebellious rulers also seems to foreshadow the ultimate destruction of this ultimate rebellious ruler. Look at how this king is described in verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. There it is again. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall pay, no, pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. And those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for the price. Look at that. He heaps honor on those who like him. Those who acknowledge him, he will load and give them rule over many other things. They will definitely look at this point that they are on the right side of history. But look what happens. Verse, verse 40. At the time of the end, though, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush on him like the whirlwind. And it goes on to say this, this one seemingly big, huge battle goes on between these human forces in which the king of the north is successful and he sweeps all the way down through the promised land into Egypt... And on his way back up, it says at the very end of this, in verse 45, he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. He will have his armies arrayed in their camps, looking up the hill at God and his people, at God's people in dwelling in Jerusalem, awaiting the final destruction that it looks like is inevitable. But at this moment where it seems that hope is finally and totally lost, we get our greatest reason for hope in this entire vision. Look what happens in verse 12. At that time, when this king is ready to attack God's people, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been before since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in a book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, 
Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Okay, I don't know how the whole prophetic time warping thing works in this passage, but at some point, by the time we get to chapter 12, verse 2, we're talking about the capital E end. Resurrection of the dead. Many of those who sleep in the death shall awake. At the moment when it seems that all hope is lost, God gives His people the promise that at that moment when you are at your weakest, when you cannot stand, that's when I will gain my victory. And at that point, I will call the dead from their graves. This is one of the clearest passages in the Old Testament about the resurrection. In a couple other places, like Ezekiel 37 and in Isaiah chapter 26, we also see the promise that God makes that He will rise His people from their graves. But the thing that stands out even more about Daniel chapter 12 is it's not just the righteous who are raised. Did you see that? Many of those who sleep in the dust shall awake, and some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is the the clearest statement we have in the Old Testament of a double resurrection, if you will, of a resurrection of those who have trusted in God to life, but also a resurrection of those who have rejected God to face judgment and everlasting contempt. Talks about books being opened. Does this sound familiar to you of another passage, maybe from the New Testament? Revelation chapter 20 seems to basically expand on what Daniel sees here in Daniel chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 20, the apostle John sees all the dead, great and small, raised and appearing before the great white throne of God's judgment. And books are opened. And everyone is judged based upon what they've done as it's written in the books. But praise be to God, there's another book on that table too. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. It says that anyone whose name was not found in that book went into that second death of the lake of fire, that everlasting contempt. What makes the difference between having your name in that book of life versus being judged based upon what you've done as written in that other book? It seems clear from Revelation chapter 20 that that book contains the names of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ those who have followed Jesus Christ. That's what makes the difference. Not your trust in your own abilities, not your trust in what you have done, but in what Jesus Christ has done for you. But it's amazing because also in Daniel 12, it says that, look at verse 3 again. It says that those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. It is one of the marks of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ that our lives are, lives are shaped by calling others to trust in Jesus Christ, to seek to turn others to righteousness that they might know. Remember what we learned in the spring as we went through the book of Acts. We as the church exist to witness to the resurrection and rule of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We are those who, because of what God has done in us, we now exist to call others to righteousness, to call others to follow Jesus with us. Because the reality is, the resurrection isn't just a future event that we're waiting for. In Jesus Christ, the resurrection has already begun. Do you see that? 
in the ultimate prophetic time warp in this passage, Daniel sees a coming resurrection. But the way that Jesus defines it is this. Three days after his crucifixion, he walks out of the grave. And I love the way that Paul says it. Can you put up that slide from Romans 6? He says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And just a few verses earlier, Paul says that for those of us who trust in Jesus, we will be united with him in a resurrection just like his. Daniel sees this coming resurrection coming. And Jesus says, look, in me, it's already begun. Remember what he said to Martha when he's standing at Lazarus' tomb? She says, Lord, I know that my brother will rise again on the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus catches Martha's attention. He says, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she says. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And Jesus says, okay, let's go wake up your brother. And he goes and he calls Lazarus from his grave. What Jesus is teaching us in that story is that the resurrection is not just an event we're looking forward to. The resurrection is Jesus. And he has already risen from the dead. So we live in this in-between time where the resurrection has already begun in Jesus, but it is not yet completed. It awaits that final return of Jesus when he calls the dead from their graves. So how do we live until then? Here's what I'd like to do in this last couple minutes together. If the resurrection has already begun, but it's not yet completed, and we live between the already and the not yet, what are we supposed to do? First, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, today is the day. Today is the day for you to stop running on and seeking to exalt yourself and live like humanity has lived for millennia, seeking our own way to do what we want. If that's the way that you continue to live your life, the only resurrection that you have to look forward to is the resurrection that leads to everlasting shame and contempt. That's the last thing that I want for you. But if today you turn from that rebellion, you turn from living life your own way and seek to come under the good, gracious rule of the risen Lord Jesus, you have the promise from Him that just as He has risen from the dead never to die again, you will have a resurrection like His. If you want to talk more about that in a couple minutes when we, when we sing a song, I would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. A bunch of us would love to be up at the prayer room with you. Or if you want to turn to the person next to you, go, hey, I know you're a follower of Jesus. What does this look like? Some of you guys might be going, oh no, I've got to come up with an answer really quick. But be ready for that. That's who we are. We exist to witness for Jesus. But for the rest of us, for those who have followed Jesus, let me give you this. There's a command that God leaves Daniel with at the very end of this vision. There's a lot more we could go into, but we do not have time to go into it this morning. He gives Daniel all these details and even some more things about timing and dates and the, how it all works together. And I love it because basically what happens is that uh, uh, in verse 8, it says, Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. You might be feeling the same way right now. I know that I have many times this week as I've been studying this passage. Okay, there's a ton here. What do I do with it? Lord, what will the outcome of these things be? Daniel says. Verse 9. Go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up 
and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and and refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand it. Then he says in verse 12, or verse 13, he says, But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. He tells Daniel to go his way. This doesn't mean like, nothing to see here, folks. Go about your business. It's not like a go mind your own business and do your own thing, because this doesn't concern you. But he also says, pay attention to what God's put on your plate. I think that's the same thing that we need to concern ourselves with right here. I mean, even more so, we live in the information age. No generation before has ever had to deal with a constant 24-hour stream of information of what's going on all around the world at any given time. And so we start to go, okay, what do I do with all of this information? I'm not saying that anyway that's wrong, but I do say I do think it confuses us. I think it can really confuse us, but it makes it hard to be both faithful and informed at the same time. Because it confuses us that keeping up with what everyone else is doing actually means that you're doing something. Go, what does it mean for us to go our way? What has God placed in your sphere of influence and responsibility? What has he entrusted to you? serve the Lord wholeheartedly there. It's not that you don't pay attention to what's going on in the world, but understand what you're responsible for and what you're not. I would hate to stand before God one day and say, Lord, I know you gave me a wife and kids and coworkers and people to lead and all that kind of stuff, but you don't understand. Twitter kept me updated on everything at every given moment. How could I be faithful with those things and stay informed? Go your way. What has been entrusted to you? Remember this. God will be faithful with the course of world events. But he has called you to be faithful with the course he has set for you. If these visions in this part of Daniel concern you, if they confuse you or even weirdly excite you, remember why God has given us these visions. These visions were not given so that people in comfortable times, when we hear about bad things that happen in the world, can get some sick sort of excitement of going, oh my gosh, we must be getting close to the end. These visions were given so that when God's people are feeling the full brunt of persecution and suffering, they might not despair. Persevere in the hope that they can faithfully go their way, even if it costs them their lives knowing that our Savior has made a way out the other side of the grave. They were given to us so that as the writer of Hebrews puts it, which is actually the next book we're going to be getting into, we can run the race that's been marked out for us with perseverance because we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, men like Daniel, who trusted in God even in desperately trying times and are now at rest in his presence. They are awaiting the call of God to raise them from their graves so that they might stand in their allotted place in Jesus' now and coming kingdom. So let's listen closely to their witness and let Daniel's witness of the faithfulness of God even in hard times spur us on to trust in the never-failing faithfulness of God and to live faithfully for him even when times are tough.
Because we have the confident hope that whatever the near future may bring, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our ultimate future is incredibly bright. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. This has been a lot to look at, but Lord, I am amazed as I study this passage to see your sovereignty over even the details of human history. You are the God that is unlike any other. You can declare the end from the beginning and say that my purpose shall stand. Even as the kings of this world and the rulers of this world will seek to do as they will, we follow the king who on his knees in a garden said, it's not my will, but yours be done. And through that, he has paid the penalty for our sin and risen in victorious life forevermore. And so likewise, we look to you, Lord Jesus, and in the midst of the concerns and things that scare us in our world, we want to say like Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. And whatever may come, we trust you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.